0: Well, the Center for Disease Control did this massive survey across the United States where they asked people, have you found a satisfying life purpose? And 40% of Americans says, I have no purpose in life. I don't have a satisfying life purpose. I don't know what my purpose is. Obviously, that's sad. Obviously, that's tragic. People go through lives aimlessly. But I want you to really think how strange that is. Think how strange it would be. What if I came up to you and I said, "Hey, tomorrow I want you to meet me in downtown Salt Lake City," and you'd be like, "Oh, Jesse, that's cool. Do you want to get some coffee?" I'm like, "No, just meet me in downtown Salt Lake City." And they're like, "Oh, would you like to grab a bite to eat, perhaps?" I'm like, "No, just just meet me in downtown Salt Lake City." You're like, "Well, do you need help with a project?" I'm like, "No, I just want you to meet me." You're Jesse, that's creepy. There's got to be a reason. There has to be a purpose. There has to be some kind of a, a reason for our meeting, a reason to spend an afternoon together. People want a reason or a purpose for their afternoon, but people don't know the reason or the purpose for their entire life. They don't know what the purpose is. And I'm here today to tell you that you are not just a bag of chemicals. You are not just a talking animal. You are not just a computer made of meat. You are made by God. You are loved by God. You were created in God's image. You have a purpose. There is a reason for your existence. God is the author of your story. And you were made to know him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him forever. Jesus. Yeah, you can put your hands together for that. And what I want to communicate to you this morning is that you were created for a purpose, and you were saved for a purpose. Jesus didn't come just to save us from something. Jesus came to save us for something. There are people you are meant to reach. There are places you're meant to go. There are broken hearts you are meant to bind. There are people you're meant to help. There's beauty you're meant to bring into this world. There's something you are supposed to do, there's something you were created for. You have a mission from God. And the title of my message this morning is this This Ain't No Side Hustle. All right, everybody say that with me. Say it together. This ain't no side hustle. You see, following Jesus is a full-time gig. Following Jesus ain't just some elective you add to round out your resume. Like, well, I did an overseas, I studied abroad for a semester, I did a little community service, and I sprinkled a little religion in there just to, just to round it all out, to make it all look good. Jesus, a little, little bit of the, Jesus don't want to be your side game. He don't want to be your side game. He's not something you add to your life. Jesus is the one thing that informs and inspires every part of your life. He's not just something you add to your life. He's the one thing that should inform and inspire every part of your life. Jesus didn't die for us so we could sit in some rows once a week and sing some songs. Jesus died for us so we could bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's what Jesus came to do. This is ain 't no side hustle if you 're taking notes, and I always think it 's good to take notes because like what 's the point to come here if you 're not even going to remember it you know that you have like a forty percent greater chance of remembering what you retain if you write it down uh, of what you hear if you write it down so i 'd encourage you to take some notes, um, but then my first thought this morning is this: you were saved for purpose. And we're going to be looking at uh, really two verses in particular, uh, in Ephesians 2.10 and then one over in Titus chapter 2. But uh, we're going to start out in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says this, incredibly famous passage. You should memorize this passage. It is so instrumental, so pivotal, pivotal, so central to the entire Christian worldview. But it says this, for it is by grace You have been saved through faith. And this is a gift from God. It's not of yourselves, not of works, so that anyone can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now. in this passage is contained the thing that is incredibly unique and distinct about Christianity from every other religion on the face of the earth. And that's this. This passage tells us salvation is a gift you receive, not something you achieve. Salvation is a gift you receive, not something you achieve. That we're saved by mercy, not by merit, That we're saved by what Jesus has done, not what we do. That I'm saved by Jesus, that I'm not saved by my perfect performance, I'm saved by Jesus' perfect sacrifice. I'm not saved by my perfect performance, I'm saved by Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And what's so different about Christianity from other religions and and from uh, even Christianity when it gets distorted and perverted, what's so unique about biblical Christianity is this. It's not just what we do, it's why we do it. It's not just what we do, it's why we do it. That I don't serve, I don't obey, I don't give, I I I don't try to live a moral life to prove that I'm good, I do all of those things because I believe that God is good. I'm not trying to prove that I'm good. I'm doing it because I believe that God is good. And that really changes everything. You see, if you're saved by what you do, the focus is on you. But if you're saved by what Jesus did, the focus is on him. And when you think that you're saved by what you do, when you think you're saved by, uh, like, you know, for instance, in, in, uh, in Hinduism, the word karma, you know what the word karma means? If you look at Ephesians verse 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know what the Sanskrit word karma means? It means deeds. It's works. You're saved by your works. You're saved by what you do. But the thing is, when you're saved by what you do, it, 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 the focus is on you. And what it ultimately fills you with is it fills you with one of two things. It either fills you with superiority, where you go, I've done more than that guy. And I've done more than that chick. And she wasn't at church this weekend, and I was. And, and he didn't read his Bible. And, he, and oh, they, go, they watch those movies, and they go to this place, and he has tattoos. And look at that person. And it fills you with superiority. Or it fills you with anxiety. Oh, I looked poor this week. I did this bad thing this week. I didn't go to church this week. I didn't make it. And this, this person's going to judge me. The God's going to judge me. God's not going to bless me. God's not going to look at my life. I'm not doing good enough. I haven't done enough. I've read my Bible enough. I haven't done enough. Fills you with either superiority or anxiety. But if you're saved by what Jesus did, you know what it fills you with? It doesn't fill you with superiority and anxiety. It fills you with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It fills you with the love of God, and you don't serve and give and do good and obey to earn God's love. You serve and give and love to express God's love. And you're filled with his peace. But if you're saved by what you do and and how good you are, all the focus is on you and it fills you with either superiority or anxiety. But I don't know if you caught it in verse 10. It's kind of interesting. Verse 8 and 9 it says, We're not saved by works because then it'd be all about us and we'd all brag and be looking down on everybody and we think that we're better than everybody. But then in verse 10 it says, We're his workmanship. And we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And Jesus actually gives us the perfect metaphor for understanding this simple distinction. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Here's the perfectly easy way to understand all of this. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. God's grace, God's grace is the soil. God's grace is the water. God's grace is the sunshine. Our faith in Christ are the roots and works, living a good life, loving others, uh, being filled with joy, being moral, doing the right thing. All of those things are fruits. Hey, let me ask you this question Do the apples keep the tree alive? Is like, the tree, like, oh man, these apples, they're really keeping me going, they're keeping me surviving. No! The tree keeps. Keeps the apples alive. You're not saved by your good works. But when you're saved, you will do good works. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. Uh, uh, Works are not the source of salvation, but they are the sign of salvation. Now, um, I used to kind of have this wrong mentality because there's a lot of ways as you're growing in Christ, you just like think about things the wrong way. You misunderstand things, and then you you continue to read the Bible, continue to meditate. The Holy Spirit begins to show you fresh things. And I used to kind of think of serving as like this fine print obligation for salvation. Like, hey, you should have read the fine print. You should have read that little clause there at the bottom. Like, it's like yeah, I'll, for, I'll forgive you. I'll save you from your sins. You'll go to heaven forever. But you have to serve me for the rest of your life. <laughs> I, that's how I used to think about it. And that was kind of the understanding I had. But here's what I've come to realize is this. Good works aren't some fine print obligation to salvation. Good works are a part of our salvation. They're a part of how God saves us. See, one of the most freeing realizations you can possibly have, something that it'll humble you a little bit, but it'll free you, it'll transform you, is if you realize this. God doesn't need you. See, he made the universe without you. He saved the world without you. He's sustaining particle matter together without you. It's not like he's like, oh, uh, hey, Jeff, could you help me with the quantum mechanics of keeping the universe in orbit? No, you you don't need your help. God doesn't need you. It actually says this in the book of Acts, verse 17 to 25, says this. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God doesn't need something from you. God wants something for you. God doesn't need something from you. God wants something for you. He includes us. I ever think like this whole Great Commission thing. Why doesn't God just do it himself? It'd be a lot cheaper, it'd be easier, it'd be less expensive. No, God includes us in the Great Commission. God includes us. That's taking the gospel of the world. That's reaching people, loving people, serving the poor. God includes us in it for the same reason I include my son in things. You know, when you're putting together Ikea furniture, which is Legos for grownups, by the way. It's Legos for grownups. When you're putting together Ikea furniture, I don't really need my five-year-old son's help. But I let him help because here's the reality. Letting him help me actually helps him. Because when he spends time with me and does things with me, he becomes like me. Letting him help me is actually helping him. God reaches the world. God reaches people through people because he's actually reaching us. God reaches others. God works through us because he's actually working in us. He's teaching our hearts to care for what he cares for. He's making us like him. Think about it. The Bible essentially teaches that the problem with the human race, and you don't even need the Bible to realize this. You can just see it by looking out at the world. If our greatest problem is selfishness, that's what's wrong with the world. People are just hopelessly selfish. If selfishness is our greatest problem, then serving, giving, loving, sharing is part of our salvation. God is rescuing us from living these small, selfish, self-absorbed lives. He's rescuing us from living these tiny little insignificant lives. The smallest life you can live is a life that's all about you. The smallest life, do you really want to live a life where nobody is sad at your funeral? Nobody even cares. He didn't care for anybody else. and Nobody cares for him. No, the smallest life you can live is a life that's all about you. But the most electrifying life you can live, the most exhilarating life you live, the biggest life you can live is a life lived for the glory of God and the good of others. That's the biggest life you can live. Now it says he has good works planned beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know that God has an adventure planned for you? God has things you're meant to do. God has places you're meant to go, things you're meant to accomplish. He has things planned out for you. But here's the thing. Sometimes instead of walking in the good works he has planned for us, we walk by the good works he has planned for us. We walk right by and We're missing out on them. Let me ask you a question that's kind of convicting. If your Christian life was a biography, would anyone want to read it? Would anyone want to read it? I don't want the most exciting part of my week to be the fact that something new came out on Netflix. (laughs) I don't want that to be the most exciting part of my week. I I want to live a life that's bigger than that. I I, I want to live a life that, that, that reshapes lives and loves people and alters destinies. That's what God has for you. You are destined for greatness. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be like him. So you were saved for a purpose. You could write that down. The next slide you could write down is this. God's plan for you is really a plan for us. God's plan for you is really a plan for us. People tell you that, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true. God does have a plan for your life. But the reality is God's plan for you is really... A plan for us. I read an interesting book by a woman named Emily Smith called The Power of Meaning. I just heard about it in Time magazine. And Emily Smith describes how suicide rates are skyrocketing in the United States. They've actually reached a 30-year high. In 2017, uh, suicide rates were higher than they've ever been in the United States, and what's really strange about this is that people who, uh, in the Great Depression, people commit suicide because they didn't have a job, but what's weird is as unemployment has gone down, more people have jobs than ever before, suicide has continued to rise. And it's, and it's risen amongst middle-aged people. It's risen amongst teenagers, risen amongst, uh, amongst millennials, ab- amongst 30-year-olds who, who have great jobs. It, across every demographic, it's continued to rise. And in her book, she explains how actually some of the wealthiest and happiest countries in the world, countries that are technologically advanced like Japan and the Netherlands and Switzerland, uh, th- their suicide rates are climbing. They're supposed to be the wealthiest, supposed to be the happiest, supposed to be the most technologically advanced. Advanced countries. And what she says is, she says, happiness, what everybody's after, does not fortify you against suicide. What protects you against suicide is meaning. You need to live a meaningful life. And this is not a Christian person, this is just a journalist. But she goes on and describes the four things you need in your life to live a meaningful life. To live a meaningful life, it's not money, it's not fame, it's not success, what you need in your life is, she says, you need to belong to a community, you need to work for a purpose, you need to have a redemption story, and you need transcendence. And I'm reading this, this is a secular author saying this, and I'm going, hmm, this is really interesting. Where can you find all four of those in one place? Where can you belong to a community, work for a purpose, have a redemption story, and have transcendence? We have what the world is looking for. We have what the whole world is longing for. Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is the hope of the world. It's what the human race needs. And if you want to live a life of meaning, you need to live a life that is committed to the local church. God's plan for you is really a plan for us. Notice in this verse, it's actually interesting. He says, we are his workmanship. And the Greek, some translations actually translate that we are his masterpiece. But it's interesting. It kind of goes against our little individualistic, every man for himself, American way. Because it doesn't say, you are his masterpiece. I'm God's masterpiece. And just being Jesus, off by ourselves, following our dreams, following our heart. That's not God's masterpiece. It says we are his masterpiece together. Together we're his masterpiece. Together the church. You see, what, what, what Paul realized and, and what, what Jesus ultimately teaches is this. We is greater than, you remember like the little Pac-Man, chomp, 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 greater than, less than. We is greater than me. We is greater than me. We are better together. And if you want to live a meaningful life, live a life that's committed to the local church. Go to church. Good job, you already did that today. Yeah. Go to church. Serve the church. Give to the church. Bring people to church. We were created for community. Yeah, I, I, I read, there's uh, this was in my notes, but I just can't help but say it. There's been huge studies done saying that loneliness is reaching just critical critical point to the, to the point that uh, the Center for Disease Control and the American uh, Sociological Association actually say that loneliness will kill you. And that loneliness is actually uh, has worth, worse health outcomes than obesity or smoking. The loneliness will kill you. And get this. I just read an article, Fortune Magazine, that said that 54% of Americans today say that they're lonely. Want to know why you should go to church? It's not because I want something from you. It's not because we need your money. It's not because we're trying to take something from you. We want something for you. you. Jesus said they will know us by our love for one another. That they'll know you're a Christian by your love for one another. You can't love one another alone in the mountains by yourself. You can't love one another listening to a Christian podcast in your bedroom alone. You can't love one another by yourself out at the beach or at the woods, even though all of those things are fine. You can learn the Bible by yourself, but you cannot live the Bible by yourself. We need one another. We are better together. God's plan for you is really a plan for us. You know, the Society of Behavioral Medicine uh, did a study where they had people get on exercise bikes completely by themselves and see how long they could go. And they could go about 10 minutes without stopping, 10 minutes full speed on an exercise bike. But then they put those same people on an exercise bike in a group and they went 21 minutes. We are better together. We last longer together. We go further together. We need one another. And, and the reality is you're going, it's true in exercise. It's even more true in your Christian life that we need one another. Get into a life group. Get into a connect group. Be a part of a community group. Be, be, put your down. Put roots down deep at, at, at this church. Make relationships. That's what your heart really needs. You don't need more time on Netflix. You don't need more time playing Fortnite. You don't need more time, you know, uh, just more money. What you need is you need relationships. You need a relationship with God, and you need a relationship with other people. But what you need to do is you need to, to, to realize that there's going to be problems in church. You're going to face problems. And, and, and if you haven't encountered any problems at the church, it's probably because you are the problem. <laughs> All right, there's going to be problems, but what you need to do as you go into community is you need to make up your mind to be a part of the solution. You're going to be disappointed. I I used to tell my church, I'm just wait long enough. I'm going to disappoint you. (laughs) Just keep coming long. enough. I'll be the one to disappoint you. David's going to disappoint you. Someone in the church is going to disappoint you, but you need to make up your mind now that your commitment will be deeper than your disappointment. Your commitment needs to be deeper than your disappointment because that's how Jesus was committed to us. That's how Jesus was committed to us. His commitment goes deeper than his disappointment. All right. So the first thing is that we were saved for a purpose. Second thing is that uh, God's plan for you is really a plan for us. And the third thing you could write down is this. Valuing your calling will keep you from falling valuing your calling will keep you from falling. There's a great cross-reference to Ephesians 2.10 that's over in the book of Titus, it's probably a book of the Bible like how nobody reads because uh, it's like one of the little obscure ones, but I love it so much. Titus 2.14 says this, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Man, I love that passage. Valuing your calling will keep you from falling. You know, he says that he might redeem us from a lawless deed. And I think I found a really powerful metaphor for this. Did you know that 60% of felons cannot find a job when they get out of prison? 60% of felons cannot find a job when they get out of prison. Nobody wants to hire them. So what do they do? They go straight back to committing crimes, because nobody wants to hire them, so they just keep committing crimes. Well, I know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. The gospel is the homeowner bailing the burglar out of jail and then giving him a job at his company. Let me say that again. The, ho- the gospel is the homeowner bailing the burglar out of jail and then giving him a job at his company. That's grace. That's grace. And what I want you to see is that God doesn't need something from you. God wants something for you. Good works are not some obligation. Good works are an opportunity. Good works are a gift of grace. God doesn't just pardon us. He employs us. God doesn't just cut us loose, he takes us on. He gives us a spot on the team. He he, he brings us into the company. He he gives us something to do. He gives us a reason to live for, a vision, a passion, a mission, a purpose. He gives us something to get out of bed for in the morning, that we'd be his own special people, zealous for good works. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for loyal hearts to show himself strong on their behalf. Do you know that God wants to do something tremendous in your life? God wants to do something through you that would take your breath away. But do you want that for yourself? Do you have a heart that, that just be loyal to him to say, you know what, God, I want that. I believe that you're good. I, 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 I don't have to obey you. I want to obey you. I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. I believe that the plans that you have for me are better than the plans I could come up with on my own. If you would believe that God would do that through your life, you got to understand the Christian life isn't primarily about giving things up. People go, oh, I gave this up for God and I had to give that up for God. I had to stop smoking. I had to stop looking at porn. I had to stop doing that. I had to stop sleeping around. I had to stop drinking. I had to give this up for God. The Christian life is not primarily about giving things up. It's about giving yourself over. It's not all the things that you can't do. It's seeing the immeasurable things that he's called you to. See, the reality is you've got to quit playing in the mud if you want to start flying with the eagles. The message isn't stop sinning. The message is start soaring. He's got something for you to enter into. He's got something for you to be a part of. And the reality is you've got to be pure if you want to be powerful that he'd purify for himself his own special people. He'd cleanse from every lawlessness and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You've got to be pure if you want to be powerful. You've got to be pure if you want to be powerful. You know what happens when you are 15 years old and you've got no school, you've got no job, you've got nowhere to be, nothing to do? You know what you do? you get a milk gallon full of gasoline and an old microwave and you run an extension cord into an arroyo and you put the gasoline in the microwave and you set that thing for as long as it will go and you run like the dickens true story <laughs> true story the fire department came and everything what's my point my point is this boredom leads to bad decisions boredom leads to bad decisions, but purpose purifies. Purpose purifies. Saying yes to the purposes of God will make you strong to say no to the pleasures of sin. Saying yes to the purposes of God will make you strong to say no to the pleasures of sin. I've got people I'm meant to reach. I've got lives I'm meant to touch. I've got broken hearts I'm meant to bind. I've got people I'm supposed to help. And I'm not going to trade my destiny for a 30-second orgasm. I'm not going to trade all, all, everything that God has ahead of me this greatness, this purpose, this mission that he has on my life. I'm not going to trade it to get a little extra money through, you know, sketchy means or to get a little high just because I'm feeling bored on the weekend. No, I'm not going to trade all that. And you don't need to trade that either. God has something better for you. And when you see how good it is, you won't even care about giving that stuff up. You won't even notice. Um, It's in the long run, in the long run, it is sin that will limit you and God who will liberate you. In the long run, you got to realize in the long run, in the moment, it doesn't feel like that. In the moment you feel like, oh, I'm so restricted. I can't do what I want. I can't give into that pleasure. In the long run, it's sin that will limit you and God who will liberate you. God wants you to reach your highest potential for his highest praise. He wants you to reach your highest potential for his highest praise. Valuing your calling will keep you from falling. So, you were saved for a purpose. God's plan for you is really a plan for us. Valuing your calling will keep you from falling. And My final point, we'll shut this down in a couple minutes, is that Monday morning matters. Monday morning matters. He says that we'd be a people zealous for good works, zealous for good works. You know what? In the Greek, the word zealous means it means one burning with desire, fiercely committed, passionately devoted. Ooh, man, that's uh, that makes your blood pump. That makes your blood boil. puts a That puts a fire in your belly and a beat in your heart. That we'd be. Uh, passionately devoted, fiercely committed, that we'd be one burning with desire? What if we were so fiercely committed to good works that we were like William Wilberforce who fought his entire life to end the African slave trade in the name of Jesus? What if we were so fiercely committed to good works that we were like John Wesley who rode over who, who rode over two hundred and fifty thousand miles on a horseback and preached over forty thousand sermons? What if we were so fiercely committed to good works that we were like William Carey, who who stopped at nothing, who tenaciously championed the the uh, the, the the mission to India and modern missions, and and made the made the the, the the converted world care about the unconverted world and carried the gospel to India? You see, when you see Jesus, because this verse, how does it start off? It says he gave himself. For us, he gave himself for us, that we'd be his own people, zealous for good works. When you see Jesus giving himself for you, you want to give yourself to him. What if you were so fiercely committed to good works that you ran your company in such a way that people saw you cared more about them than you did about prophets? What if you were so fiercely committed to good works that you decided you were going to go to medical school and then you were going to fly around the world and go to countries where people didn't have access to medicine? What if you were so fiercely committed to good works that you decided you were going to go all in at this church plant and just be relentless and, 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 and serve till they made you stop? What if you were so fiercely committed to good works what if you were so fiercely committed to good works that you fostered and adopted kids who didn't have a home? But what I want to tell you is this. This life doesn't start one day. This life starts two day. Jesus, uh, what he wants to do in your life, stretches to the extraordinary, but it begins with the ordinary. What if you were so fiercely committed to good works that you did every assignment in Jesus' name? What if you were so fiercely committed to good works that your boss couldn't help but promote you? What if you were so fiercely committed to good works that that, uh, your spouse or your parents didn't have to ask you twice to take out the trash? What if you were that fiercely committed to good works that you could do everything in Jesus' name? This ain't no side hustle. This ain't no side hustle. It's everything. Following Jesus is a full-time gig. And when you see Jesus totally giving himself for you, you want to give yourself totally to him. Now, I want to kind of end where we begun a little bit. Psychologists talk about something called intrinsic in extrinsic motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation is going, well, I don't want to get fired, so I better work hard, or I have to get a grade, and I don't want to get dropped from the class, so I'll do this assignment, or I got to make a paycheck, I've got to make amends meet, that's extrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation is when you go, man, I just love playing guitar, nobody has to tell me to play guitar, I just do it, I'll do it all the time, I love taking photos, or I love my job. I'm I'm practically a workaholic. I just love doing what I do. It gets me going in the morning. That's, That's intrinsic motivation. What's so interesting is that every religion on the planet is based on extrinsic motivation. I need good karma. I want to keep the five pillars of Islam and go to paradise one day. Or I, 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 you know, I don't want to like go to a sensitive subject, but like I want to rule my own planet one day and have spirit babies. Or, or, or I don't want to go to hell. Or I want to be blessed. Or I don't want to end up in purgatory. Or, or I don't want to be judged. Or I don't want you know, anybody looking down on me. It's all extrinsic motivation. We know what the gospel is. The gospel is entirely based on intrinsic motivation. You go, I believe God. I trust God. I've seen the goodness of God displayed in the person of Jesus, that Jesus gave himself totally for me, and I want to give myself totally to him. I'll close with a true story that I think kind of illustrates this. There was a a tech company in Seattle, Washington, and there was a, a CEO named Daniel Price. And because of the astronomical rent prices in Seattle, He heard some of his employees talking about how they couldn't even afford to live in the city and he felt conflicted and he felt sad that his employees were having such a difficult time. He didn't know what to do. And then he got an idea. He was like, wait a minute, I make a million dollars a year, but I care about my employees. I care about this company. You know what Daniel Price did? He took a $930,000 pay cut and doubled the pay of all of his employees. I bet you wish your boss was like Daniel Price. You know, when you see someone giving themselves totally for you, you want to give yourself totally to them. If Daniel Price was your boss, you would go, you tell me to jump, I will say how high. You tell me to run, I will say how far. You tell me to stay late, I'll say how long. You would do whatever you could for that guy. Do you see that Jesus didn't just take a pay cut for you? Jesus was cut off for you. Christians don't obey God because they have to. Christians obey God because they want to. And that's the gospel.